For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is giving, and the is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Today is about peace, having a prince of peace. And it has not been a peaceful year, 2020, has it? You can think of peace as an outward reality, um, experiencing general calm and flourishing around you. And few in the world have been really deeply experiencing that unless they own property in New Zealand or something like that. You can think of peace as an inward reality, experiencing a deep sense of being just utterly undisturbed, having consistent hope, and being able to live with the experience of that hope ever-present in your heart, and few are reporting feeling that either. But peace is what we want. Um, You know, there's an old bumper sticker nobody sells anymore, or at least I don't see it very often, that says, visualize world peace. And people love that one. They love to mock it, right? You get the visualized world peas, that, that mocking of the bumper sticker. But the truth is, we can make fun of that bumper sticker all we want. Um, but it is a wonderful thought, uh, the idea of peace. Um, just think about it, family peace. What if, what if in your family you just utterly experienced peace or peace in the church, That sometimes feels like it's a little harder to come by than it should be. Um, Peace in our city, neighborhood, peace, peace in our country. If only we didn't have to worry about our packages and gift cards getting stolen from the mail, right? That'd be nice. Um, It'd be really nice to just be like, I I could leave them out there for the afternoon and not have to do what Ray did this week and call me in the middle of the day and say, hey man, can you go pick up that package from my house? I don't want it to disappear. Um, if only we didn't have to worry about the arguments we'd have if we were getting together on a regular basis. You know, that's, that was one of the great gifts of Thanksgiving this year for some folks. Don't have to have those arguments. If only, if only, if only. It's a nice thing to imagine, isn't it? That if only, that, that idea of what if there could be peace? But peace seems really fleeting, um, it feels something like this, like a glimmer of sunlight. Like if you're driving down the street, you're, you're having one of those days where you, you woke up, you got plenty of sleep, coffee was good, and you're driving down the street, and there's this glimmer of sunlight, and it just kind of makes you go, wow, the, the world sure is beautiful, isn't it? And you look out the window and hear the birds chirping, the weather's perfect, Tucson, Arizona in December. And it makes you smile until someone blares their horn at you from behind because you aren't driving, actually, and you didn't notice the light was green, and they give you the bird on their way by. And then you have to go to work where it's busy, and then you're back home where you have a lot of responsibilities. That can be kind of how peace feels, right? We get this little, ah, and then, ah, it's ripped away. There's so much going on. There's everything's thrown off. We get peace, it seems, in these short little episodes. And even when life changes and we're not busy anymore, you get that pandemic moment where you realize, guess what I get to do? I get to do my home project checklist, right? That's what I did about March. I said, you know what? Home projects, I'm, I'm going to do this. 
and you, uh, and you get a break and you're not busy anymore. You get older and you, you retire from that job that's been just robbing you of peace. And then you begin to sit at home and look at the clock and you go down that YouTube rabbit hole, get into the news cycle and, uh-oh, where, where's my peace? <laughs> my peace is gone, all right? Throw into that this year, just the fact that there's a pandemic and none of us know exactly how it works, and there's ideological tensions, and many of us don't know exactly what they mean, and there's marches and riots in the street, none of us know exactly which Instagram thing to post, and for goodness sake, there's a presidential election, and the peace can be awfully hard to come by in a year like this year. But a baby was born in a feed trough in Bethlehem. And the prophet Isaiah said that God's people would be given a child, a son would be born, and his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Okay. What do we do with that? This is our text for the next four weeks. I want to add a little background to it. So, you know, to answer the question, I like to ask the question that I wish people would ask in church, right? Who cares what Isaiah said? Who is Isaiah? I think those aren't the worst questions to ask. Isaiah was preaching to God's people some seven to 750 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He was no joke. He wasn't just like any old guy. He was born into Israel's royal family. He probably received the best education available in Jerusalem. He was knowledgeable and respected. And we know this because he was tasked to keep the history of the Judean court This means that he was of high status. Uh, We know this because it's recorded in 2 Chronicles 26 and 32. They allude to his writings as chronicling the history of, of Israel's people. If you were able to write in these days, you were of the highest echelon of the educated. And if you were trusted to write the history of God's people, this means you were in the highest echelon of those who were believed to have wisdom and who were worth listening to. So the people of Israel preserved his writings in their temples and in their canon of scripture. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. And why did they do that? At least one reason why they did it for the long term was because he made some predictions and those predictions came true. When he said the Assyrians were going to overthrow Israel, they in fact did. When he said that Israel would be overthrown by the Babylonians, they in fact were. And so his messages were verified as being from God as well as being wise and meaningful and helpful. The Israelites did not keep his writings because he said things that they wanted to hear. He had hard words for Israel as well as for their enemies. He predicted, as I said, their fall to Assyria and Babylon. And he said not only that it was going to happen, but he said to Israel that to some degree it was their own fault, that God was judging them for abandoning his covenant, for trusting in alliances with kings and people rather than trusting in God alone and in his faithfulness. And indeed, these people who God had chosen did go through many trials. They had crooked kings, oppression from enemies, corruption and oppression from within, and finally defeat and exile in Babylon, one of their lowest points in their history. But Isaiah, early in his book, tells them that there's hope. He tells them that those who experience darkness, and he lists off two of the tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, 
And the reason he talked about them was because they were the tribes who were literally on the front lines of every attack. They always took the brunt. They always got hit the hardest. And he said to them that they would see a great light. I'll read Isaiah 9, 1 to 7 again. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? Why would they burn their battle robes? For to us a child is born, Isaiah wrote. To us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So in a time of great upheaval, when Isaiah was writing, when they fell to Assyria, when the people of Israel fell to Babylon, God's people were given a great hope. Earlier in Isaiah 7, this son who's spoken of was told to be, what was foretold to come from the womb of a virgin and to be called Emmanuel, God with us. He would be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Then, of course, uh, hundreds of years later, we have a man named Matthew, the disciple of Jesus who converted from being something of a traitor. He cooperated with the Roman government to overtax the Jews. That's how we find him in the Bible. And he reflected back in his biography of Jesus and wrote in the early pages of that biography these words. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, Matthew said, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that Jesus, who Matthew observed and wrote about, began to preach. His first great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said to the people, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Later, the Apostle John records him saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
finally in John 16, 33, said, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Matthew, all the disciples of Jesus, all the early church, all believers throughout the ages in this kingdom that has never come to an end, all believe that this Jesus is Isaiah's prince of peace. So what happened in the world when that prince of peace arrived, when he came in the flesh, when he truly was Emmanuel, God with us? He came in the days of Caesar Augustus, who was taxing the entire known world. The Jews had a puppet king named Herod, who, hearing that a new king was going to be born, slaughtered all little boys being born at the same time. Throughout Jesus' life, Roman emperors rose and fell. Jewish Sadducees abandoned their miraculous beliefs that their ancestors had held for ages, and they modernized, accommodating to Roman ideas. Jewish Pharisees fought to get back to the good old days and became extremely self-righteous. And the zealots stockpiled weapons and tried to overflow the govern- or overthrow the government from time to time. Like in the Maccabean revolt that's celebrated at Hanukkah. And Jesus survived Herod, but then himself later, after a relatively short ministry, was arrested and was killed by a crowd of Jews, God's people, and Romans. And 70-some years later, Jerusalem was sacked by the emperor Titus. And the temple, as Jesus had predicted, was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. And to this day, it has never been rebuilt. But the disciples of Jesus have gathered every year, many on the Mass of Christ's Day, which we've come to call Christmas, and declared that their resurrected king was their promised wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. When Jesus came into the world, it didn't get very fixed, did it? What does it mean to hold that title, Prince of Peace? Now, Prince, of course, is a political and royal title. You think of authority, right? But it's not the king, it's the heir of a kingdom as a prince. Maybe more importantly, what is peace? Well, to us, peace usually means the absence of major conflict and is and taken just using that definition alone. Um, they didn't get it in Isaiah's day at all, nor did they get it when Jesus came and died or even after he was resurrected, nor if you study world history, has it ever existed except in relatively short episodes ever since. But fortunately, that's not the word for peace given to us by Isaiah. He gives us the word shalom, really, if you dig below the English. There's a book many of us have read a couple chapters from, if you've done Surge, um, 96 Christian Book of the Year. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be by Cornelius Platinga. A lot of it is about shalom. Because shalom epitomizes the way it is supposed to be. 
I'll just read you a little bit. Just listen to this and imagine what it'd be like. Here he describes what the prophets like Isaiah believed about shalom. He said they dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. All rough places would be made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise would be made humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace, and their work would be fruitful. Lambs would lay down with lions. All all nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from valleys and seas, women in the streets, and men on their ships. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. He goes on to succinctly define shalom as this universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Everyone experiencing, flourishing, wholeness, and delight. That's the word we read in Isaiah when we read peace, that the coming child will be the prince of peace. And that puts the concept even further from our experience, doesn't it? We don't even have peace, let alone shalom. So what good is it to have a prince of shalom when we aren't even experiencing Peace. Well, let's return to the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you, he said, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. There's the expectation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. How does the world give you peace? Just think of every single way you really want peace in your life. That's probably how the world gives it. But Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. When Isaiah promised this shalom, it feels too good to hope for in our experience. But Jesus, the one born of the virgin, is saying, my peace, the shalom I bring, transcends our experiences. It's true, Jesus is saying, even when in your life it's not true. Now what is this? Some kind of disembodied hope? Is this mysticism? Are we detaching? Is this pie in the sky like a promise? now that only comes true in some kind of ethereal future, or is this just plain false? Or none of the above. God's shalom is what many theologians call already, not yet. And it's far more real and more important than any of its imposters. It's a current experience rooted in a present and coming Reality, a current experience rooted and anchored in an already present and future reality. 
A shadow of it could be something like this. A sense of hope you have when you've been extremely ill and you go to the doctor and they give you this cocktail of pills and they promise you in just a couple of hours, your symptoms will clear up and you begin to feel something. You believe something better is coming and your experience of the now, even though it's imperfect, begins to change because you have hope. Or as some have said, the relief that, sh- that soldiers feel when they hear the decisive victory has been won, though they remain on the battlefield and, yet, and are yet to return from their homes and recover from the ravages of war. And this is especially an apt comparison when you consider Philippians 4, where Paul, the apostle, says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, many of you have heard my translation of this, it doesn't make sense will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that have to do with warriors on a battlefield? Well, simply this. When Paul says the peace of God will guard your hearts, he's using military language. It's the guarding that happens. I don't know if you've ever like studied up on old Fort Lowell, but old Fort Lowell in Tucson is a garrison, and they built a wall, and they filled it with soldiers. And if you needed to be protected back in the day, you would run to Fort Lowell, right? And inside of Fort Lowell, you would be inside of a structure, a building, two foot thick walls. And outside of that, there were encampments of soldiers all around you who could protect you. And outside of them were structures that could protect you. So even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of invasion, you could go and you could hide in the fort in Fort Lowell. That's the exact idea that Paul is trying to get across when he talks about the peace of God. It is not something that clears up all problems in the world. It's something that makes you able to exist within the world with a deep sense of absolute safety and assurance of victory and hope. The comparison is this. You can be on a battlefield exposed. You could be in a war alone in which you'd feel very anxious. But even in war, in the safest position possible, surrounded by defenders and infrastructure, you can feel safe. And that is what it is to be in Christ. A current experience of peace rooted in a present and a coming reality. And in a powerful and present person. See, the prophecies of Isaiah promised a prince of peace whose kingdom would be everlasting. And how how is that possible? Uh, Those who read the prophecy, who read it in the past, I should say, likely thought it just got passed down from good king to good king. They were just hoping, well, hopefully the next king is better. And hopefully it keeps getting better. And hopefully things sort of, you know, work out as time goes on. And they never, ever did. Um, The kings didn't sustain the kingdom. 
But later in Isaiah, this Prince of Peace is described in some really surprising ways. First of all, his kingdom fills the earth. Second of all, later in Isaiah, Isaiah, the Prince of Peace dies in disgrace. But then all of a sudden, he lives again. The disciples of Jesus and Paul lived as confidently as they lived in chaotic times because they had seen Jesus after he had died. And they had come to believe that this promise of Isaiah, of God in the flesh, a God, a Prince of Peace, who would reign, who would die, and then would live again, had actually come true. And Jesus, before he ascended before their eyes, told them, I I will never leave you. Not only do I give you my peace, he said, I am your peace. And my spirit will be comforting you and will be ever present for you. I am, in a sense, like the garrison, like the fort. I am all around you. I command my angels concerning you. I'm guarding you from my place at my Father's right hand. I am the Prince of Peace. There have never been truly lasting, peaceful times on earth, and there never will be until God brings perfect shalom as he's promised. Until then, we'll never get it right. Never. Until all things are turned the way they're supposed to be. 2020 is just a rough year. There have been many throughout the ages. But if we can see God's promise and see that God always has a plan, he told his people at creation, we said this two years ago at Christmas, Genesis 3, he told his people, I have a plan. The head of the serpent will be crushed. I will overcome your tempter. I will save you. I will deliver you. And he told them over 700 years ago through the prophet Isaiah in his incarnation, when Jesus, our God, walked among us, that he, that he had a plan and he would be with us. And that plan, by the way, includes this past year. And then see, God not only has a plan, but we have his presence. The apostles, they suffered and they died at the hands of Roman tyrants. But none of them suffered and died without peace. How? They were rooted in a present and coming hope. They actually believed they were safe in life and in death because the risen Christ would cause them to rise again in his kingdom. And that made them able to pursue their mission, which is what Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, happy, will be the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You can only be be a peacemaker when you are rooted and anchored in God's peace. You cannot spread or manufacture something you do not have. You can only effectively give your life for the good of others without a persistent selfish motivation when you know that the life of the Prince of Peace was given for you, that you are safe and have hope. You can only serve and love in ways that make you suffer more. And it always does. When you, when you serve and you love and you give of yourself, it, it always comes at a cost. You can only do that when you see that Isaiah's suffering servant suffered for you. Jesus is our prince of peace. Do you see him as such? Do you know his peace? Are you an instrument of his peace? The Lord is at hand.
He's right here. He's surrounding you. Do not be anxious about anything. Rather, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to know this peace. Sometimes I think we feel kind of like the disciples in the garden. Some of us just want to run away. Some of us want to grab our sword and attack. It feels as if you aren't doing, doing anything. It feels like you're just getting arrested. It feels like you're not standing up for us. It feels like you're not standing up for yourself. We're tempted to deny you multiple times. But God, help us to remember, as those disciples saw, that you indeed would conquer through your suffering and help us to believe that we will be victorious in ours, in you. Even more, God, show us your mercy and your grace. May we be like the Apostle Peter who took out his sword and cut off the high priest's ear, went on to deny you three times, and then the next time he met with you, experienced you restoring him and giving, you, giving him absolute grace. Not only restoring him, but saying, I give you a new name, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. How in the world is it that you continue to build your church with us, God? Thank you for your mercy. Help us to see it and help us to experience greater and greater measures of your peace.